Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Hour two on Thursday, September the 30th. So because it's Thursday and because it's hour two, that means that Dr. Peter Kapsner is up next. And I I like work all week to come up with, uh, you know, just even a couple of headlines that I can lead off with on this hour on Thursday, you know, that will bring Peter joy and give us an opportunity to chat about something a little off, uh, maybe what's generally off topic. <clears throat> so I had uh, I had saved up a couple of, uh, of articles to share this morning. One, about some goats uh, who had been hired in Atlanta, in an Atlanta suburb, to to clean up an area um, behind a commercial piece of real estate. And they got free. And then they, of course, chewed up the whole neighborhood. And so I was going to have a conversation about sheep and goats. And there was another uh, article about um, a, a guy that won a marathon because the guys that were actually leading the marathon, these Kenyan runners, were led off course by a volunteer. And so I was going to talk about, you know, the way we get led off course and the way being narrow. And um, but instead, I woke up this morning and one of the things that I read uh, in The New York Times is an opinion piece by Laura Bazelon. And this piece um, talks about divorce and the effects on children. And so I thought, you know what, I feel obligated to read a portion of this uh, this morning because here is an example of a person in the culture who clearly misunderstands identity, marriage, and parenting. Laura Bazelon says today in the New York Times, I used to believe that divorce was a terrible thing, particularly when children were involved. Growing up, I absorbed cultural tropes about absent fathers, inefficiency apartments, mothers struggling to support themselves, awful step-parents, and unwanted step-siblings. To this day, divorce is portrayed as precarious and grim. Parents whose marriages break apart are made to feel they have failed catastrophically. Divorce is shameful, traumatic, and bad for kids. But I've learned that divorce can also be an act of radical self-love that leaves the whole family better off. Now, the, let me pause there. The definition you'd have to use for family um, is different than the one we would traditionally use. All right, back to her. back to her comments. My divorce nearly seven years ago freed me from a relationship that was crushing my spirit. It freed my children, then five and three, from growing up in a profoundly unhealthy environment. Now, there was no emotional or physical abuse in our home, no absence of love. In fact, I was in love with my husband when we got divorced. Part of me is still in love with him. I suspect I will, that will always be the case. Uh, even now, after everything, when he walks into a room, my stomach drops the same way that it does uh, in, when a roller coaster goes down. I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him. I divorced him because I loved myself more. Many other reasons. Uh, there are many reasons we did not make it. But the main one is that we had incompatible visions of our role as partners and parents. Having children did not transform me. In fact, it didn't change me at all. 
I love our children beyond reason, and I know I'm lucky to have them. But after I became a mother, I was still the same striving, work-obsessed, domestically challenged person I had always been. I made choice after choice to prioritize my career because I believed fervently in the importance of the work that I was doing. My ex-husband was not unreasonable in wanting me to change, uh, not to give... uh, not to give up working, but to stop chasing after bigger, harder projects. He works hard, but not when he is at home. He rarely travels and actively engages with nearly every aspect of our children's lives, no matter how mundane. I fell short of those standards. You're not present was a phrase that I heard a lot, and sometimes it was literal. For years, I traveled frequently for work, and sometimes it was metaphorical. My mind consumed by uh, cases and pieces of writing, and I would retreat to an inner world that made it hard to focus on the people right in front of me. She goes on. It's a long piece. I commend it to you. Um, it makes me really sad because, you know, here's the truth of the matter. Relationships change us. I mean, that's how we're designed. We're designed in the image of a God who is relational. And when we are reconciled in relationship to God, it changes us. And then human relationships change us as well. Marriage changes us. Children, ch- children change us. And yeah, Divorce, that changes us. So marriage means something. And in a temporal world, and, and, it, and it means something eternally. So whenever we lose sight of or lose our grasp on God's good intention for marriage and family, we undermine the very foundation of the entire social order. So I want you to pay attention today to the people right in front of you. Peter Kapsner's up next. We'll be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner, now not sure what he's talking about. <laughs> Welcome, sir. Thanks, Carmen. I have to say, as you were reading through that article, Paul, Pro, and I, it's a good thing the microphones are off in studio because we were taking turns having visceral, physical, and sometimes audible reactions to the story. There, there was so much in it was that bad. that is, yeah, it was so just bad. so representative of the of the of the spirit of the age. Right? There was just a lot in what so you read. Much so, yeah. okay, and and revealing my um, like I have like a tick. One of my ticks, like one of my like, oh, are you kidding me? Like I can't, is, is when you can tell that something which is supposed to have been through like, I don't know how many rounds of editorial stuff at the New York Times, the word efficiency is misspelled in the first sentence. <laughs> it kind of, it takes and all so credibility like, out, right? I like, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm just like, I mean, are you kidding me? In the very first sentence, you can't, you can't, don't, you don't have spell check. I mean, I have spell check. Okay, that's, that's all. amazing. I, I, I love it. No, but of the many things to be outraged about about that, the I, I misspelling know. of efficiency is right at the top of the list as well. There's no well, question. No. I mean, I know, right? <laughs> this is where my outrage my outrage meter at 4 a.m. is sometimes a little off. Okay, uh, my outrage meter though, and yours as well. Tucker Carlson's um, on on Fox News. Tucker Carlson did well. Okay, it was kind of masterful what he did, but the thing that he was commenting on is incredibly disturbing. Tell us what the New York governor said on Sunday morning in a message from a pulpit. 
Yeah, I, I had to watch it and sort of rewatch it and and see that it wasn't a parody of some kind, that this was actually what she was presenting. This is Kathy Hochul, who's the new governor, replacing Andrew Cuomo in New York. And what Tucker Carlson was trying to highlight is that we have exchanged uh, a belief in God on behalf of the future, on behalf of ourselves, for a different kind of religion right now in, in the situation of our country. And that is the religion of COVID is what he called it. And, and it lest that be hyperbole, it really seemed not to be in the mind of Kathy Hoko, the governor, because she began to associate vaccination. And boy, you and I could probably, and I know you you talk about vaccination and you've had a lot of really helpful conversations about that on the morning show. It certainly is interesting to see how vaccination is really in the top of the mind of my students right now. I ask them at the beginning of each semester when I teach ethics uh, to go ahead and interview people, to go outside of class and, and get a little feel for the temperature of society. So that we can talk about the things that matter or that are top of the mind. And and I came to class this year and for the first time, vaccination was top of the list. So there's lots to talk about there. But but her perception of vaccination and the importance of it led her to the kind of statements where she associated vaccination with how we show love for one another as Jesus would show love for one another and that this is how we take care of one another and if you want to be a faithful Christian then you must get vaccinated and then she went even a step further beyond that she said I want you all Carmen I want you all to be my apostles to go out and basically spread the good news of vaccination uh, out in the world around me and it was just a fascinating statement because in the time of okay, Jesus fascinating is a nice word Oh for thank it. you yes it was, that's a bit, it, because <laughs> it was it was a, a terribly unhelpful if I'm if I'm not measured it was a terribly unhelpful and heretical statement because she is making a claim uh, apostles supposed to spread the good news on behalf of the rabbi who is teaching us about what God's kingdom is like right and so so when you talk about that, you, she is uh, putting herself in the place of God in a lot of levels right there. It was it was really scary kinds of stuff. Yeah. So to be clear, um, she doesn't have apostles and she doesn't have a saving word and she is not the savior. Right. And for her to stand up and act as if she is and as if the good news that people need to go out and spread is uh, has anything to do with anything other than redemption in Christ Jesus. Like I just on so many, it's so bad on so many levels and that it took place from a pulpit right like, on a Sunday morning in the context of what is supposed to be an hour of worship. I mean, I just, yeah, it's stunning. Absolutely stunning. And, and there's associated jewelry. Um, and yes, so, and I know you've of, lined up, I know you have it queued up in your Amazon cart right now to get I the jewelry. T- I had to go look. Carmen, yeah. I'm going to just tell you <laughs> that after listening to Tucker Carlson's monologue, I I had to go look. I had to go look and see: is there really jewelry on Amazon? Are there really candles? I mean, the and and the answer to all of those is yes. It is it's, yes. It, it's unbelievable to me. Um, and so uh, there you go. All right, you and I are going to leave that right there because when we come back from a break, uh, we're going to talk about a denomination that has been forced to sell its headquarters building because, well, it doesn't have any employees because it doesn't have any people. All right, that's up next. You're on mornings with Carmen. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. And before we talk about uh, the the sale of a 
denominational headquarters building. Um, Peter wants to talk about an alligator he watched corralled into a trash can. <laughs> that was I, I texted actually Bill <laughs> because Arnold this, this is radio. Yeah, for because sure. this is radio. <laughs> for sure. Now you have to tell people what you saw and you have to describe it. Oh yeah, I woke up this morning to a, a wonderful video of a guy in Florida who managed to corral into an empty garbage bin a six foot alligator that was sitting outside his Florida property. And of course, everybody's getting on video. I I texted Bill Arnold the afternoon show host here on Faith Radio this morning. I said I'm pretty sure that I won't see anything better than this all day and it's two and a half minutes that guy to, to get the six foot alligator in we were just in florida a couple of weeks ago and i had small lizards outside our door from time to time that gave me pause but not a six foot alligator carmen you said it well during the break this guy should run for office he, he would he would be the governor of the state immediately based on on how he was able to wrestle down that alligator it was fabulous no, I think that, yeah, if you haven't already seen it, like, it's everywhere. This video is everywhere. I saw it yesterday as well. And um, so, yeah, <clears throat> guy corrals alligator in a trash can <laughs> is probably all you need <laughs> to put in your in your Googler. Um, yeah, unbelievable. And here, here were the points in the video. I'll just, you know, I'll say, Peter, <clears throat> that troubled me. Um, at one point, you know, he's like looking at the other people who are... <laughs> A safe distance away, obviously. (laughs) And um, and because he can't see he can. He's behind the trash can, which is laying down on the ground. He cannot see the alligator. Right. So he's trying to get them, the people to tell him what's going on. And instead, they're just reacting with like, you know, right. So that's not helpful. Like if you're if you're (laughs) if the person doing the work needs some assistance, you know, seeing where they're headed, like, right. okay. And then the other part was once the alligator's actually in there and he's trying to tip the trash can up, no one came to help. Nobody came to help him. I know. I'm thinking like it's really heavy. A six foot alligator is really heavy and he has to tip it up and no one comes to his aid to help him do that. Even when the, you know, like quote unquote threat is now in the trash can. Although I'll admit to you, it doesn't matter that it's in the trash can. It'd still be super scary. Okay. It was. Yeah, indeed. Um, So there you go. That's video this morning on radio because everybody loves that. Uh, I am reading an article here entitled once dominant liberal denomination sells headquarters in dramatic downsizing. Now, downsizing sounds like something you did intentionally, but uh, this is just um, unintentional downsizing. Um, so what's going on here? Yeah, this is actually part of what appears to be a bigger trend than even just in our country and some of the liberal denominations uh, that are closing up, that are maybe selling their space to other organizations as well. My wife, Hallie, just got back from Scotland, and, and she was talking about how some of these ancient cathedrals are now selling to become trampoline parks and, and maybe other social gathering places because there's nobody left. And even the, the Church of England came out recently and they said we have to admit that we had invested tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to try to reach the next generation and uh, and it didn't they said it failed it didn't work there was no meaningful gain in terms of numbers of people attending church and so I know you and I have chatted about this over the years, that that we are in a trend of decline in Christendom in general. And so the some of the more liberal denominations that departed from the authorities of scriptures are are declining quite a bit faster than than other versions of Christianity in our country. And and I would suggest, Carmen, what you can see through the lens of history is that when people depart from things of God's kingdom in in order to somehow be more relevant or to address things in the culture from, from sort of a non-kingdom or more sociological standpoint, 
they tend to fall pretty quickly. This is not the first time this is going to happen. I don't know how to interpret why that happens that way other than to say that Jesus's kingdom is the only one that will remain. And, and when we step deeply out of alignment with it, uh, it might be troubling for us for quite some time and, and it might be confusing for quite some time. But those versions of the faith, uh, they, they sort of go into the scrap heap of history and you can see it over and over again. And, and today is no different. So the liberal denomination is certainly uh, not experiencing the kind of growth they hoped when they decided to depart from the scriptures and and move more into sort of social engineering and, and social change. And I remember it was, I think it was about 2002, three and four, that there was something called the Jesus Seminar that was being done. And, and I was in full-time faculty in a Bible theology program at that time. And, and the Jesus Seminar was trying to take the words of Jesus and identify which of them that they felt could be authentic, uh, be authentic and which words of Jesus were maybe just glossed in by later editors. And, and basically what they did back then is they deconstructed the, even the words of the authority of Scripture at that time. Many of our listeners are probably not aware that these things are going on behind the scenes in academia all the time. But the rippling impact of that is that then pastors end up getting trained by academic leaders who maybe behind the scenes have deconstructed the authority of Scripture and deconstructed the words of Jesus. They get trained, then they come in and they begin to shepherd their denominations from that kind of training. And so now some 20 years later, we've seen the results of something that was probably relatively obscured called the Jesus Seminar all these years ago, having played itself in. And it has failed miserably. Um, the churches that tend right now to seem to have some stability associated with them are those churches that have stayed faithful to the authority of the Word of God. And, and uh, boy, I, that's the kind of thing we talk about in my classes with young people as they're charting out the future in this ongoing decline of Christendom. One of the most important things they can do is, is humbly submit themselves to the authority of God's kingdom with, uh, with intellectual honesty and pursue the scriptures as a, as a place of authority for them. It's, it's so critical moving forward. Yeah, when we're talking about former mainline denominations, uh, you know, having reached the point where they're selling their headquarters buildings or in the case of the PCUSA, having rented out uh, the overwhelming majority of their headquarters building in order to, you know, pay pay their own rent. Right. Um, uh, we're talking about denominations that have undermined their own foundations. And so once you once you have undermined the foundations of the faith that you are supposedly proclaiming, you know, like people understand that there's no there there and they stop going there and they start going somewhere else. And so I think you said it well, you know, we have now a generation of pastors in much of mainline uh, Christianity who they have come by their version of uh, of what they're doing. Um, honestly, yeah, they, they went. Have. They were raised in churches where these were the things that were taught. They went to seminaries where these were the things that are taught, and they are now teaching those things as if, uh, as if that is true, and that's such a perversion of the truth. Um, it's an absolute suppression and denial of who God is and what God has said, and what who Christ is and what Christ came to accomplish. Like so, when we talk about. Um, all of when we talk about, let's say, a pastor today declaring something from a supposedly Christian pulpit that is patently not Christian and patently not the gospel, um, and we say, "Well, that's a false teacher." Here's the reality: that person came to that place and into that position. When I say honestly, what I mean by that is they were raised in it, they were educated in it, they have been ordained in it. And they think that what they're proclaiming is the truth. Like it's it's yep. the 
it's the most honest, delusional uh, thing that I, that you could ever have come up with. Yeah, no, you're so right, Carmen. One of the things that, and I think you've said that so well and so importantly, is that when you look back through theological history of the last 2,000 years, but you look into biblical history as well, one of the patterns that you see over and over again is how quickly the people of God forget. They, they hardly ever hold on to what is true for long periods of time, all the way to the point that it's a fascinating story to me in the biblical text, when, when they have lost the book of the law, for Pete's sake, what, oh, yeah. what it was that gave them shape for their covenant and who they were as the people of God. They lost it along the way. They had to find it buried under some rubble and thought, what, what's this deal? And they unearthed the book of the law. And so what you just said uh, is so important that it, it has come by, honestly, the, 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 they're, they're not thinking, uh, pastors of this generation are not thinking, I probably should preach the truth, but I am going to preach this instead. They, they truly believe that what they're saying is consistent with the kingdom, and that has everything to do with the training that's going on behind the scenes. So, so the delusion is an honest one, but it also is representative of what we so often do, which is we forget about the things of the kingdom. So to the extent that we can keep staying faithful in these crazy places and these crazy times, that uh, there is one kingdom that will remain, and that's the one I want to participate in. Yeah, so um, Hilkiah. That's who you're looking for in your character study with Bill Arnold about uh, <laughs> who it is that found the book of the law, cleaning out the back uh, closet of the temple. I love that. I lo- we need to have Hil- a sixth child, Hallie and I do, and that's what we're going to name him. So I love that Hilkiah? idea. Yeah, that's Hilkiah. a great name. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. That might have been on my, um, on, my, on my Bible exam in seminary. All right. So, uh, so there you go. Peter Kapsner, as always, thank you so much. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. Suicide is a traumatic reality when we think about the ways in which lives come to an end. Suicide is a death that is hard to explain, really hard to recover from for those who loved that person best. And so Rita Schulte is going to join us next. She is she is a woman whose husband committed suicide. And she's written a book called Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. She's here to help all of us live in a world where suicide is a tragic reality. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. Scripture says in Romans 5.20 that the more we see our sinfulness, the more we see God's abounding grace. To abound is to have a surplus, an abundance, an extravagant portion. Should the fish in the Pacific worry that it will run out of ocean? No. Why? Well, the ocean abounds with water. Need the lark be anxious about finding room in the sky to fly? No. The sky abounds with space. So should the Christian worry that the cup of mercy will run empty? He may, for he may not be aware of God's abounding grace. Are you? Are you aware that the cup God gives you overflows with mercy? Or are you afraid that your cup will run dry? Or your mistakes are too great for God's grace? God is not a miser with his grace. Your cup may be low on cash or clout, but it is overflowing with mercy. Why, God, 
Do people have to die? A daughter or a son? Sudden and so Rita Schulte joins us now. She's the author of Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. Rita, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. So I think that the best way for us to enter into this conversation is for me to just gently ask you to take us back to 2013 and tell us your story. Sure. Uh, My husband, excuse me, was a a dentist. He was a pilot. He owned his own airplane. He was really Superman uh, to a lot of people, very beloved in the community, very active in uh, pro-life. He was the president of the board of a crisis pregnancy center for 13 years, preached, taught. Uh, He was an amazing man. And within a very short time, several months, we watched him literally uh, lose his mind. So it was very unlike anything we'd ever seen. He struggled with a lot of paranoia, depression. And we had gone to our home in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida for the weekend with some friends, and he was really not doing well at all. And so he was supposed to go to a treatment center. I'd arranged for that on uh, that Tuesday. And so Monday he got on an airplane and flew back and I was gonna fly back Tuesday morning and he was gonna go ahead to Dallas on Tuesday and I was gonna join him. Uh, I was waiting to see if he felt like this was a good fit because we tried something else before and he just didn't think it was a good fit for him. So he flew back, I spoke to him on the phone Monday night. He wasn't doing great, but he said he would call me and let me know he was safe when he got there Tuesday. So Tuesday morning, I started trying to reach him by phone, and I couldn't. uh, Very anxiety-ridden when I was at the airport. But then I found out that, yes, he indeed uh, made the doctor's appointment he was supposed to go to that morning, so I was able to relax. I flew home, got in a cab from DCA, and uh, pulled up in our driveway Uh, went into the house and I saw all of his stuff in the kitchen. So I knew he didn't get on the plane and I went upstairs, I turned the corner and my husband had taken his life uh, in our bedroom, in, in our bed. So you can imagine the horror of that scene. And so I ran screaming from the room and somehow got downstairs and I just collapsed and curled up into a ball. So that was uh, the heart of trauma right there. Well, first of all, Rita, um, I'm so I'm so desperately sorry, and I um, and I have so much gratitude um, for your willingness to share and your strength and ability to tell the story. Um, and yet I know that that is like literally just the beginning. And so, Absolutely. right. And so um, I think that is the real gift that you, that you've given everyone in this book, Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. The real gift is that you show us that there is a way forward. Um, and so, you know, I, when I think about, you know, like what's the next best question to ask here? Um, I think that part of what um, what everyone wonders is what are the questions that 
we're supposed to ask or not supposed to ask? Um, what are the observations we are supposed to make or not supposed to make? What are even the words we're supposed to use and not supposed to use? Um, can we call it suicide? Can we say that your husband took his own life? Um, we hear language in the culture that's so different than that now. Um, and so can you just wander around in all of that for us? Sure. Well, I think now, while the term committed suicide may seem innocuous, mental health professionals and even the media are strictly advising not using that term because really what it's doing is damaging people. It evokes associations that this person committed a crime or, you know, for us in the church, committed some morally reprehensible act, a sin that was unpardonable. And that's damaged a lot of survivors, that piece right there. Because, you know, you've lost your loved one to a very violent, sudden, and horrific act, and then somebody's going to put on you, well, your loved one's in hell forever. Mm. And so it's it's staggering, you know, that people will say things like that to survivors. But I have a, a colleague and a friend who, you know, I spoke with um, at the American Association of Christian Counselors a couple of years back, and that's what people were saying to her. They were Catholic, you know, and, you know, people just don't know any better, really. But that is huge for uh, trauma survivors. It also ignores the fact that suicide is often the consequence of an unaddressed mental illness, depression, bipolarity, some kind of mental health issue. And it should really be regarded in the same way as any physical health condition, right? We wouldn't say, you know, you committed a heart attack or you committed cancer. You know, you might hear somebody say they died from cancer. And dying mm -hmm. by suicide is the same, right? When we attach the word committed, it discriminates against those who lost their battle against a very real disease. It's just that we can't see that disease when someone's struggling with a mental illness. And so the oh, whole that's, idea- that's so helpful. I, yeah, we're trying to eliminate stereotypes. As far as um, the thing, the great question about what to say and what not to say. So my assistant, after this happened, the first thing she did was she Googled what not to say to a suicide loss survivor. And again, you know, what I talked about a minute ago is is what we're, we're really talking about. Like what you wouldn't say something that hurtful. Like I heard, well, that was such a cowardly act. Uh, research shows, you know, it's really not a cowardly act. A person's, first of all, mentally sick. And second of all, the person really believes that you would be better off without them. They are that much into either self-loathing or this sense of a perceived burdensomeness on their loved ones or a thwarted sense of belonging. And so there's kind of oceans of research that support some of this. And, you know, most people don't understand that. All right. So what, um, what should we say? What can we say? What ought we, sh what, what ought we say? Let's cover a little bit of that, but we have to take a very brief break. We're going to continue our conversation with our sister in Christ and just such a brave woman, uh, Rita Schulte. The book is Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. We'll be right back. We've lost our connection uh, briefly here to Rita Schulte, the author of Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. Um, so let me let me tee up a point that um, that she and I are going to cover when we come back. 
I uh, I visited with hurricane survivors uh, following Hurricane Katrina, and part of what was so challenging is that everything was lost in a state of devastation, in utter ruin. And there's a paralysis that they were experiencing about, you know, how do you take that first step? How do you take the first step beyond your life in total ruin? Um, and that is that is what I will say um, Rita does so effectively in this book, Surviving Suicide Loss. She really does equip, encourage, and empower um, suicide loss survivors to take the first step um, to begin moving forward uh, into a life that is that is filled with with light and hope. Rita, um, I hope I've got you back now. Yep, I'm here. Fantastic. Um, so we were talking just before the break about what not to say. Can you give us a little bit of insight into what we should say? I think the most important thing when somebody has lost a loved one to suicide. So suicide, even more than other types of bereavement, makes people uncomfortable and uncertain of how to react. And so that makes it more isolating for survivors. So letting a person know that you're just there, emotionally attuned and available for them, you don't have to say anything. I mean, we, and especially as Christians, you know, we want to throw out a Bible verse or, oh, your loved one was needed in heaven. God needed another angel in heaven. And they mean to soothe you, but if you're struggling with your concept of God after someone, you've lost your loved one to suicide, that isn't going to be helpful because you're already kind of struggling with your concept of God. Like, God, why would you allow something like this? So I think just being emotionally attuned and available, you know, a touch, a hug. I had people that just sat and cried with me, uh, put their arms around me, held me. And that was so awesome to just have someone present with me, like, and know that they were hurting for me. And just telling somebody, I'm here for you. If you want to talk, I'm here. If you don't want to talk, I'm here. Practical things. Bring a meal over. Don't call somebody and say, well, if you need a meal, like, just bring one over and leave it at the front door. Just be present for people. And then be patient with the griever. Uh, Kay Warren wrote a beautiful Facebook post a year after her son took his life. And the idea being patient with your griever. You know, your your friend has been wounded and scarred. There there may not be the happy-go-lucky person that you knew six months ago, but they'll make their way back. Just be patient with them. Don't don't throw out Bible verses or make them feel guilty or shamed because they're not where you think they should be in their grief journey. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense, and it's so helpful. Um, we're hearing uh, we're hearing from listeners on our text line this morning just how. Um, how appreciative they are for your being here with us this morning um, and and their own experiences of of the loss of loved ones um, who took their you know who took their own lives am I allowed to say it that way like am I yeah, like, yeah. I, I, mean, I need help with the like, language yeah no look it just in the last year this has happened you know, because I think in the book I even say that and so we're really just trying to be sensitive but Yes, died by suicide who took their own life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, next first steps, I mean, for me, <clears throat> as a counselor, uh, as a clinician, and as a survivor of suicide loss, I think the most important question folks have to figure out is the meaning they've attached to the suicide. And that's yeah. where I want to go because that's where they're living their lives from. So I want to understand what they believe about self-God in the world around them now. Because all the explanatory styles that we all have about life and God, 
they're not going to work after the suicide because a bomb's gone off in this person's life and everything they believe is going to come into question. And so they're going to be struggling with their belief systems. And so we have to work at meaning-making reconstruction. We gotta, we're going to be consumed with these why questions. And for a loss by suicide, you're never going to kind of know all the whys, right? It's not like a normal death where a person gets sick and dies. So you're going to have to work your way to establish new meanings. You're either going to assimilate those things into your already established belief system, which says something like, okay, I had a very strong faith uh, before Mike died, and I assimilated the whole incident into my already established beliefs. Does that make sense? Like yeah. I did, I, so, but, <clears throat> but for other people that maybe they're going to say, you know what, I don't believe all that anymore. I don't believe God's good after this horrible thing's happened to me. And so if I'm going to do that, then I have to accommodate that and set up a new set of beliefs to make sense of the tragedy. So we really have to help people through this meaning-making reconstruction piece because all the tacit assumptions they have about life and God and the world around them have been sorely challenged through the loss. And so that's very slow work for folks. That's the slow work uh, that Rita um, helps us do in her book, Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. Um, Rita, um, one of my favorite hymns is Great is Thy Faithfulness. And there's this line in there that talks about strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Mm. So um, maybe as we conclude our conversation today, you could just tell us about your strength for today and your bright hope for tomorrow. I think what we've got to look for for folks in the initial stages of a loss like this is some protective factors that will engender hope. And for me, after the first few months, I came to a turning point because of my children, and I had a couple grandbabies at the time. And so that became uh, a hope for me. And uh, one of the big things I had in my heart from the very beginning was I would keep saying, I, I, I want to redeem this loss. And there's a beautiful scripture in Luke, I think it's Luke 22. I based my first book on it. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I pray for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, that when you turn back, you'll strengthen your brothers. So Satan's there to sift me as wheat through this. Michael's my high school sweetheart, the love of, you know, I mean, we were had a beautiful love relationship. But Jesus was at the right hand interceding on my behalf. And now that I've made my way through, my heart is to turn back and strengthen my brother. So the hope then is when we walk through these valleys of sorrow and suffering, that we can look forward and do something amazing with the time that still remains. The story's not finished yet. Anybody out there listening, your story's not finished yet. It may only just be beginning. God has a plan. He wants to use this in your life for his glory. And that right there is a springboard toward hope. Rita, um, thank you for living out, uh, manifesting 2 Corinthians 1-4 and comforting others with the comfort with which God has comforted you. Um, you are certainly extending to others um, a real grace. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for um, the new book, Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. Rita, thank, thank you. Thank you, Carmen. God bless you Absolutely. for having me on. Absolutely. We'll be right back. 
All right, it all comes down to this. Love God and love people. Today is National Love People Day. So how are you going to love God and love people today? And how are you going to love people um, with the love of God? God is love. God commands us to love, and God never commands us to do something that he doesn't supply everything necessary um, you know, for us to be able to accomplish his will. So God who commands love, right? And when I say commands love, you can look at the first and the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So love is a command. This command I give you, love one another, not as the world, but, you know, but as, but as God has loved you in Christ Jesus. So love is a command. God then also supplies the love necessary to do what he commands. Love is the first gift and love is the fruit, the first fruit listed of, of the Spirit's presence in our life. So love is like really knit into this whole God thing. So let's love people today on, yes, National Love People Day, but let's do so because God is love and we are gods. Let's do this. Blessings, hope, and yes, love to you this day. In Jesus' name, have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.